You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 13. This is a, another one of those uh, passages of Scripture where uh, I'm, I'm glad that we, we preach this way, that we go through texts, because this is a, another chapter that I'd probably skip over. Um, and you should see why. I, there are, this is a relatively long chapter. It's, it's 38 verses. Uh, and I, I've broken it up a bit uh, to help us walk through the whole story quickly. So I'm actually going to read it off the screen to make sure that I'm reading you the portions that, that I've broken up for you. And I'll fill in the gaps between the verses. So this is uh, 2 Samuel 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Why are you, in other words, why do you look so worn? Why do you look so sickly? Will you not tell, he, tell me? Uh, Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said to him, lie down in your bed, pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat. Prepare the food of my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Now, this is uh, in the context, remember, of David having many wives and many sons and daughters. Um, so we don't even necessarily know how well Amnon and Tamar are acquainted with each other, uh, but they know that he knows that that's his sibling, and the way that he has fallen in love with her is forbidden. It's, it's sinful, it's not allowed. Um, and so Amnon does what uh, Jonadab uh, has recommended, and then Amnon forcefully uses his power, his position, his physical force, and he abuses and mistreats his sister, and then uh, just kind of crumples her up and casts her aside. He's gotten what he wants from her, and he throws her aside and leaves her in this terrible state. Uh, and in fact, it, it says his affections turn from love instantly to hatred. He begins to hate her. Um, Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this, this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister, he's your brother, do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister, Tamar. 
So Tamar is, is a victim, and in this culture, basically her future has been stripped from her. She has had the adornment of her innocent childhood ripped away from her. And she now goes into mourning in her, her other brother's household in this sort of protected state, but she has no future, basically, because of what's happened to her. And, and obviously, her brother hates his half-brother for, for what he's done. David was very angry, uh, and it seems here that Absalom has decided that he will take the matter into his own hands. Um, what then happens, is two years later, two years, Absalom enacts the plans that he has he seized upon in his heart, and he contrives to get Amnon away from the palace and at this sheep-shearing sort of ritual event, and he gets Amnon drunk, and his servants kill his brother. Uh, and somebody comes uh, at first and tells David's, David that all of his sons have been killed by Absalom. And David is, is terrified, petrified, and he begins to weep. Uh, but this is, of course, uh, not what has happened. And in fact, Jonadab, who pops up back in the story to de deliver to David this good news that it's not everyone who's died, it's just Amnon who's been killed. As soon as he'd finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom, he's mourning here for Amnon. Uh, so Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. I think that's the end. Yeah. This is a, uh, as, as difficult and dark as the story of David and Bathsheba is, there is instant degradation in the story which actually the text has been preparing you for. Because in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan tells David in his judgment, 2 Samuel 12, 10, the sword is not going to depart from your household. So then immediately following the next story is a demonstration of this prophecy coming true. And this is not the end of that prophecy coming true. And what we actually have here is David's sins reflected in his children and then intensified and worsened. All of the elements of David's sin from 2 Samuel 11 with David and Bathsheba are here, but they are worse. As, as much as, as David has treated Bathsheba as his wife, this, what Amnon does with this forbidden woman, his half-sister, is worse. And just like in David's story, violence and death results from this terrible sin, now there is fratricide. There is the killing of one brother by another. So the, the darkness is readily apparent here. And this is one of the times where you have to look at the bleakness of the text and you have to ask, why is this here? <laughs> why is this story here apart from telling the fulfillment of a prophecy? And why is, it, why is it full of so much detail? 
Why, why not just some sort of summary? But this is a long and involved story, a terrible story. In, in this story, you have uh, sort of concentric circles of guilt, of culpability. You have lots of, of guilty people here, and no real heroes. You have victims, and you have perpetrators. Obviously, the clearest villain in the story is Amnon. Amnon is the firstborn son of David. He should be the heir to the throne. He should be the man after the man after God's own heart. And what we see is that Amnon is possessed by the power of sin. This, this idea, this seed of Im- inappropriate, improper, sinful desire has lodged itself in his heart and consumes his affections. It consumes his thoughts so that he begins to look physically ill dealing all the time with these improper desires. And, and you and I probably have had some close uh, experience to this experience of being captivated or fixated by sin. It can, it can be sexual sin, it, it could be a uh, sin of bitterness, it could be a, a covetousness, a longing for things or security, but this is sort of the way that sin can be, is it, it hooks its tentacles into you, it hooks its talons into you, and it won't let go, and then soon this Thing, this one small portion of available life to you becomes the, the only thing that you think about. It becomes the thing that you, you meditate on, that you dwell on, and it occupies this monstrous, massive place in your focus. And so has happened to Amnon. And then it, it rules him and it masters him. And Amnon acts violently. And then after he has done this thing, this terrible, terrible, abusive, destructive, wicked thing, what is his immediate response? It's that he hates this woman that he was obsessed with. And this, I think, is such an accurate depiction of the cycle of sin for many people. You crave and you crave and you crave what you should not have and then you have it and then you are disgusted. This ultimately is what I think is fueling Amnon's hatred. The text doesn't explain that for us. It just says it. he turns to hatred. My, my guess, my, my, based on my own experience and the experience of others, is that Amnon hates what is disgusting him. And he is disgusted by what he has done. And so he sort of says, that is encapsulated by this woman. So he decides to probably not even intentionally, not even rationally, just hates what is disgusting him. This is the horrible, horrible cost of sin. That in a moment... What has so captivated your attention and affections can at times, not always, but at times, suddenly once you have it, you see the horrible consequences of it in your heart, in your life, 
and you are so filled with shame that you cannot believe that you even for a moment thought that this is what you actually wanted. Many people, that, that switch of hatred actually just gets reflected onto you. Ugh, I cannot believe that I'm, I'm so stupid to do this. This is probably the worst version of that, where you reflect it onto somebody else as, as if it's their fault. And, and we have to be clear, it should be clear in the text, both from the portions we read and, and the whole chapter as a whole, Tamar is totally innocent. There is no part of, of this story in which she is culpable at all. And unfortunately, with sins of this nature, the victim is often heaped, has heaped on them consequences that they did not earn for themselves. Tamar is, is robbed of a future because of her changed status in society. She, she has to live in desolation with her brother. And what often accompanies that just implicitly because of the shame of the thing is a shame that falls on them as if she was guilty. And she bears no guilt whatsoever. So this whole thing immediately becomes this mess of darkness and death and shame and hatred. Amnon bears all of the weight of guilt here. This is not Amnon's fault, I mean Tamar's fault for, for being too pretty or dressing too nice or wearing uh, too colorful of makeup. She bears no responsibility here. She's entirely a victim and the text makes that completely clear. She tries to stop what is happening and you can hear that she is powerless. Physically, positionally, she has nothing she can do. Amnon bears guilt, the guilt of this thing here. And then you have Absalom, who, who is horrified and disgusted, rightly, by what has happened to his sister. His, his response, his emotional response, is correct. This is not right. This is a terrible thing that has happened to you. Notice, this is not him saying to Tamar, like, how could you let this happen? This is him speaking to Tamar, trying to comfort her, and it seems like he is saying one thing on a surface, but planning something beneath it. In other words, just let me handle this. And Absalom takes what is a legitimate and righteous anger and inappropriately leverages a position of justice for himself. Now, the thing that he wants to do to Amnon is the thing that should happen. Under the law, what Amnon does in, in both being violent towards his sister and in abandoning her results in the highest kind of penalty. What he wants is not wrong necessarily under the law. But he seizes for himself the position of judge, jury, and executioner 
and decides to bring the sword down on his brother. And we're going to see in, in Absalom, this is actually emblematic of a larger problem in his character. And he will continue to have this problem to grasp for what is not his. But again, this is the the pervasive and destructive nature of sin. Sin is not content with one victim or two. It is reaching out to encircle everyone possible to bring everyone down into the darkness. So this family gets dragged into this abyss of betrayal and destruction even further. Two years he meditated on his hatred. Two years. Absalom bears his own guilt in the situation. But there there are more peripheral people that we should not skate by in the story. The first is this person, Jonadab. Jonadab is is a cousin. He is the son of David's brother. He is a cousin that enables and facilitates Amnon's violence. And and the the text makes very clear mention of him. The writer of 2 Samuel very clearly tells you where this advice comes from. And then he disappears, and he reappears at the end. He tells you Jonadab is a very crafty man. And what Jonadab does is he sees a man tottering on the brink of sin and he pushes him over. He tells Amnon how to violently take what he inappropriately craves. Jonadab is crafty in sin instead of being wise to protect his cousin. And almost certainly entirely for his own gain. Why would you do this? Because if you help the firstborn son of the king get what he wants, one day he will be the king and he will like you and he will give you power and wealth and security. And so Jonadab throws Tamar under the wheels of his own ambitions. And then when he pops up again at the end of the story, what is he doing? He is there to tell David good news, that all of his sons are not dead. Why would he be bookended in the story like that? Because the whole time you are meant to see that Jonadab is driven by ambition. If you can help the firstborn son of the king and also deliver good news to the current king, you are in a good place in the, in the palace. A- Amnon is, is the, the wickedly violent one here. But Jonadab is cold and calculated and cunning in his evil. And he facilitates a terrible crime against an innocent girl. I, I was reading this text and I, I couldn't help 
but feel so, so sad and angry at how often the Jonah dabs of the world still infiltrate stories to facilitate and protect that which should be pushed away, exposed, and banished. Most distressingly, it is, it is terrible how many times Jonadab has sat in our churches. That for the sake of expediency, for the sake of a reputation, things are silenced or facilitated and the innocent and the wicked come into terrible conflict and the innocent are rolled over. It is, it is tempting to read Jonadab's story and, and to say, goodness, we, who could be so cold-hearted? Well, it's easier than you think. Far too many times we act out of the impulse to protect, preserve, and enhance our own reputation. And that, that's, that's at a, that is a minimal level. That's easy. We do that. Those are just subtle micro decisions in the span of a conversation to just quietly make yourself look better instead of another. That, that's nothing. We all deal with that. But it is easy, easy to decide that you will cover up for someone who should not be covered up for. Or, or you enable somebody for, for whatever reason. And it has to be said that that none of this, the Bible is not presenting this to you and saying, you know, be like any of these people. But the easiest one, maybe the second easiest one to be in this story is Jonadab. We cannot facilitate wickedness like this. We have to have accountability a clear view of what sin will do. And when sin is done, we have to not hide it away, but pull it straight out into the daylight so that sin will die. Or else, we will die. Maybe the easiest person to be in this story, though, is David. David does nothing. Hero David. Hero King David. Israel's greatest king. Hears about the violation of his daughter. And he does nothing. He gets angry. That's the only thing that he does is he gets angry. And he does nothing. See, Absalom gets in trouble because he does what he is not appointed to do. The responsibility in the story falls on the king. And the king abdicates his responsibility simply because he inappropriately loves his son. 
He is blinded by his affection for his firstborn son. Sweet, innocent, precious little Amnon who he's seen grow up. That's all he can see. And he cannot see his son for who he really is. And he does nothing. This is the easiest person to be in the story. To just see evil, to see wickedness, and to say, oh, that's terrible. And even if you are in a position to do something, you abdicate and do nothing. The easiest thing to do in the world today is to be angry at the things that you should be angry at. Look, the world is throwing stuff at you all the time. Things that you should be angry at. They're wrong, they're bad, they're evil. And somehow we have taken, oh, I'm angry that this thing has happened, and said, look at me doing so much to stop it because I'm so angry at it. Look, you can't do something about everything. But if you think that merely being angry at something in the world is you eliminating it, it's delusion. Not all of us are in a position to do something about everything. We're not. We're not all David in every situation, but there is plenty that God has delegated responsibility to because you're there. And I don't know what it looks like in your, in your world, place of business, your school, whatever. And the easiest thing to do will always be to do nothing and then to go home and complain about it as if you're the virtuous one. The harder question is to ask, what has God called me to do? How must I do it? But David does nothing. And it tears his family apart. David David will be marked by this inability to act, not just in this story, but in stories to come. He, He loves his son, all of his sons, and will drag him down. This this story is full of evil. And when you come to 2 Samuel 13, you are faced with the problem of evil. Because what you should always be asking when you're reading Scripture is where is God? What is God doing? What is this saying about God? Scripture is revelation about God. That is primarily what we believe about Scripture. So how do you come to this text that is just evil with no heroes, there's only victims and perpetrators, what do we do with the problem of evil here? And and everybody has to stare into the abyss of evil. Every person always has to come to grips with this problem, the problem of evil. Terrible, terrible, terrible things happen in the world. They will happen to you and or people that you know and love. They just, it will. And so the question is, if Israel's God is still alive in Israel in this story, then why did this happen? Why was Tamar this victim? Why? The temptation is to read this story all by itself And to see King David doing nothing 
and to believe that's what God is like. God sees and He knows. And He does nothing. If you have not experienced feeling that, I can almost certainly promise you that you will. Because evil presses in on all sides and will chomp at you and gobble you up and spew wreckage out on all sides, we are constantly faced with the pressure of looking at this version of King David who sits there and does nothing and saying, is, just, is this just the way God is? Is, just, is this just the way the world is? The violent trample on the powerless. The wicked go unpunished. And actually, if you are asking this question now in the middle of your life or, or you're about to be or you have in the past, all you have to do is open the book of Psalms and read for, I don't know, 15 minutes and you will almost definitely come to a psalm asking the same question. Where are you, O Lord? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? I know that you are better than this, but where are you? This is the, the question that drives the writer of Ecclesiastes. The teacher, the wise one, will look at the world and say, you try and you try to be wise and to be righteous. But the wicked succeed at the same rate as the righteous. And then everyone dies. What's the point? This question is inescapable. And when you read 2 Samuel 13, you have to read it as part of the story that it is a part of. Because in many ways, it could, you could be tempted to believe that God sits on His throne, maybe He gets angry, but He does nothing. But David here, this is one of the many times where we have to look at David and say, David is teaching us what God is not like. I, I can never answer the why question for you. I can never say, why did this happen? I have no answer to that. We have to read the book of Job and listen to it instructively. Job's friends are, are trying to explain why terrible things happen, and the book of Job never gives us the answer to tell us why these terrible things happen. So I can't answer the question for you, why did this bad thing happen to you? Why? But what I can tell you is what God is like. And He is not like David. David allows violence to be done to his wicked son and nothing done to preserve, protect, and make things right for his innocent daughter. But Jesus comes into the story of humanity because God is not unmoved by the power, the destructiveness of evil. But instead, God conspires with His Son who is righteous 
to deliver a bride into safety in his palace. The Father and the Son conspire together in all of eternity to let the, let the sword fall on the innocent Son who is far better than the wicked sons in this story. God is furious at the power, the destructiveness of evil. And God does not do nothing in the face of evil. God sees the problem of evil in the world and His answer is to let the power of evil expend itself on Him. God loves the innocent victim like Tamar and allows Himself as an innocent party to be victimized and brutalized and devastated and destroyed. God sees the power of the wicked powerful And though we might want him to come in and disarm and to stop and interrupt, he instead lets them expend all of their power on himself. He stretches out his arms on the cross and embraces and pulls in all of the power of sin and death so that when his body falls into the grave, he clutches sin and death to his chest with it and throws it into the grave himself. I cannot explain to you the whys, the wherefores, the hows, and the winds of God dealing with evil, but what I can tell you is that His cross is planted in the ground as God's forever testament in the middle of human history that He furiously says no to the power and destructiveness of that evil. God's answer has been given in down payment in the cross that He will destroy, He will find all the source of evil in the world, and He will destroy death itself. He will put it to death. And this King puts Himself on the cross so that it might be destroyed and promises that one day He will finish what He started so that He will pick up the sword one day Himself and bring justice and bring shelter to His bride and wipe away every tear that she has shed. God loves the victim. God loves the person who has been trampled by sin. And because He loves so deeply, He freely pours out His wrath on His Son. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit conspire together that their love will not allow them to sit back and do nothing, but instead they will do everything that is necessary to disarm and destroy the wickedness that we see in 2 Samuel 13 and the stories of our lives and in the news, and in the books of history. All of it God sees. And He will not be like King David. This morning, the cross stands before you. An assurance of God's character. If you have been broken by the power of sin, from outside of you, coming upon you by powerful people, or if you yourself are in the grips 
of this cycle of desire and shame. The cross is before you this morning, representing the character of God to you, assuring you that God will not do nothing, but in fact does everything. You must trust Him. That doesn't mean that everything has to make sense to you. That doesn't mean that everything is automatically and already better. That day when Jesus comes to wipe every tear from our eyes, that day has not come yet. And we long for it. We pray for it. We plead for it to come quickly. It is not here yet. So I'm not asking you to be totally fine. What I'm asking you to do is come to Jesus, this good and better King, and to trust Him that he has not done nothing and he will not sit back and continue to do nothing. The cross stands before us today. The answer of God to what we see in the abyss of 2 Samuel 13. This is the nature of this king. And he is far, far better than even our biggest heroes. He's better than David. And he's better than you can imagine. You trust him to keep doing what he's always done. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, God, we thank you for the the sharp edges of, of Scripture. We thank you, God, that Your word does not shy away from the darkness of this life, of this world. God, I thank you for for the the words of the psalmists and Ecclesiastes and Job that tell us that you, you, you invite our heartache, our discontent. You want us to bring you these questions. God, I pray that our eyes would be open to your answer in the cross. I pray, God, that our hearts would be soft. Father, I pray for all of those here who've been victimized, who've been abused and mistreated by powerful people doing sin in the world. I pray, God, that they would find in you acceptance and healing. And God, I pray that you would help us deliver us from evil. Turn us away in the time of trial. Send to us people who will not be like Jonadab, who will not push us into the pit of sin, but will instead steer us away. Help our hearts to be soft and sensitized to the Holy Spirit. Keep us Oh God, in your grip. Father, I pray for all of those who hear how Amnon is tossed between desire and shame, God, and I pray that you will break that cycle in their life. I pray, God, that they would see in your cross the hope that they might have, that they need not forever be imprisoned by their desires. Jesus, we thank you that you're a better king than we could have imagined. Help us to continue to grow in trusting you, that you might be lifted up as the great hope of the world, the redeemer 
the great Savior of the bride. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.